Some say that uh, he was merely a good man. Some say he was only a moral teacher. Some say he was just a Jewish prophet. Some say he was merely an itinerant preacher. Some even say he was a political zealot. Some say he was a religious extremist. Some have even called him a psychopath. Some have called him a charlatan. And he was called a blasphemer. Some say his grandiose claims were a lie. Some say that his life and death were a waste. Some say his trial and conviction were evidence of the fact that he was guilty. Some say his crucifixion was proof of his humiliating defeat. Some say his purported resurrection was a hoax orchestrated by his disciples and that his decomposed body is laying in an unmarked grave somewhere. The world sees the son of two peasants born in a stable in a nowhere place, an uneducated carpenter growing up in a backwater town, an unsophisticated, unrefined, uncultured man who never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. The world sees a 'er ne'er-do-well who never attained worldly wealth or power or position, a pathetic figure really, whose political and religious naivete ended up getting him killed. The world sees a sad but inconsequential chapter in an uninteresting corner of the world. These are some of the perceptions the world has of the first century man from Nazareth whose name was Jesus. Perception, of course, is an interesting word. We've all heard the old adage that perception is reality. Do you agree? Is perception reality? I looked the words up uh, just for your entertainment. Perception is defined as a view, an opinion, an assessment, an impression. Reality is defined as a truth a certainty, a verity, or a fact. Of course, a view, an opinion, an assessment, and an impression can be the polar opposite of the actual truth of the matter. A perception may be a universe away from the reality at hand. Copernicus taught us that. You guys remember prior to the 16th century, everybody knew that the sun rotated around the earth. It was, it was unquestioned. It was the science of the day. Everybody knew it. If you didn't believe it, just go outside, watch the sun come up, and then watch it go down. Of course, we know that universal perception in that case was 100% wrong. So it is with the man from Galilee named Jesus. He was not merely a good man, a moral teacher, a Jewish prophet, or an itinerant preacher. He was not a political zealot. 
He was not a religious extremist. He was not a psychopath. He was not a charlatan. He was not a blasphemer. And he was not a criminal. His claims were not a lie. His life and death were not a waste. His trial and conviction were illegal and did not prove any guilt. His crucifixion was legalized murder and it was not His defeat. And His resurrection was not a hoax and His body is not laying in an unmarked grave. True, His parents were peasants. Yes, He grew up in an out-of-the-way place. Yes, He was a carpenter by trade and True, he never achieved any greatness as the world measures it. But he was not a pathetic figure. And his life was not a sad, inconsequential chapter in an unimportant place. He was God. This carpenter from Nazareth kind of gives you chills, doesn't it? He was God. He was I Am. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was Elohim incarnate. He was Adonai embodied. He was Jehovah come down from heaven. He was Messiah come to save His people. He was God. He is God. He is the Creator incarnate, crucified, buried, risen, reigning, returning God. He is the God of Psalm 99. This is my... This is my chorus for, for 2013. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The deity of Jesus Christ has been one of the undercurrents of this book as we study through this letter of Peter. Peter's reminding a suffering people that their God is God and nobody else is. From the beginning of this letter, Peter's been reminding Christians perception is not always reality. That's one of the things that's between the lines. Perception is not always reality. Peter's been reminding us who we are and who we belong to. And he's been, been reminding us how we're supposed to live in light of the fact that we profess that Jesus Christ is God. And we profess to be His disciples. How are we supposed to live in light of those professions? Regarding suffering, if you've been around for a couple of months, you realize that God has told us in 1 Peter, our trials are necessary. Chapter 1, verse 6. Our faith will be Tested by fire, chapter 1, verse 7. Sometimes we will suffer unjustly, chapter 2, verse 19. Sometimes we do what is right and we will suffer for it, chapter 2, verse 20. And we've been called for this very purpose, chapter 2, verse 21. If we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are blessed, chapter 3, verse 14. And in this life, we will be slandered and reviled for the sake of righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 16. And as we move into chapters 4 and 5, God will tell us, since Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. 
chapter 4, verse 1. We're not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal among us as though some strange thing were happening to us. Chapter 4, verse 12. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Jesus, keep on rejoicing. Chapter 4, verse 13. If we are reviled for the name of Jesus, we are blessed. Chapter 4, verse 14. We who suffer according to the will of God and trust our souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 19. The world's perception in the Christian's suffering in this world, could easily, easily be and often is that either our God is a pathetic kind of God, an impotent God who can't provide or protect His own people, or He's simply a myth, some kind of an elaborate fairy tale. I think many times this is the perception of unbelievers in the world as they view Christians suffering for their faith. But the world's perception here is not reality. In fact, it's a universe away from reality. The deity of Jesus Christ is not only not a myth, it is a historical fact. And Christian suffering in this world is not due to God's impotence, it is due to God's sovereign design. We understand this as Bible-believing Christians. In our text tonight, Peter reveals that through Jesus' suffering, it was the Father's will that His Son be ultimately and eternally exalted. He was exalted, He is exalted, and He will be exalted. And it is clear from the teaching of Scripture that through the Christian's suffering, it is the Father's will that we too be ultimately and eternally exalted and we will be. This is an important passage in, in understanding First Peter, the passage we're looking at tonight, beloved. This is the paramount lesson we are to draw from the text tonight that we will be exalted with Him. We will suffer. We've been seeing it over and over and over and over again in this little letter. The Christian will suffer for being a Christian. God tells us that. It's clear. We've talked about it over and over again. We will be persecuted because we claim the name of Christ. But here's the truth that we see in this text tonight. We will be exalted with Christ. He was our example in suffering. You may remember 1 Peter chapter 2, I think it's verse 21. He was our example in suffering. And He is our example on the other side of suffering. We will be exalted in Christ. This is one thing Peter's saying to us tonight. He's saying to a suffering people, I know it's been hard. I know it's hard. I know many of you have lost a lot. But remember this. You will be exalted with King Jesus. You will be exalted with King Jesus. Beloved, we're not supposed to ever forget this. And when it gets hard, we're supposed to focus on this. 
We don't look at what's hard. We look through it and we look at Christ. We see His exaltation and we understand soon we will be with Him and we, be, we will be exalted with Him. First Peter 5.10 It's one of the concluding comments in this book. It reads like this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is really one of the core messages of the book. You will suffer. You call yourself a Christian? You will suffer. You will suffer. But you will be exalted with Jesus. Even as Jesus suffered, and we're going to see that tonight, He suffered death on the cross. He suffered it. But now He is exalted. It's what Peter's saying to us. Keep your eyes on heaven. Take the long view. The problem with many Christians today or professed Christians today is they've, they're taking the short view. <laughs> it's like all we can see is this, in this, is this life. And I don't have to tell you, if you've read your Bibles, you know that's wrong. We're not supposed to be looking at this. Yes, we have to deal with this, but we look through this at God's sovereign purpose in our lives. You guys know that great text. Some of you are probably already thinking of this verse. Romans 8, 16-17. Paul says it like this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. That's the point of the text tonight. There's some weird stuff in the text tonight. Uh, scholars and theologians have been debating it for a long time. I don't want you to get lost in the weeds tonight. I don't want you to get off on the... The details are not the important thing. You don't often hear me say that about God's Word. The detail is not the important thing. It's the illustration. We're going to see Jesus die in verse 18. We're going to see Him um, exalted in verse 22. Jesus suffered in this life. Christian, you will suffer. But through His suffering, He is exalted. Christian, you will be glorified in Christ. We're supposed to know this. And we're supposed to live like we know this. That's why we're not blown over when it gets hard. We don't get blown over when the cancer comes. We don't bl get blown over when there's financial disaster. We don't get blown over when an illness comes. We don't get blown over. We don't get blown away. And when we're persecuted for the righteousness sake, we look through it knowing that even as Jesus was exalted, we too will be exalted in Him. You're supposed to know this, beloved. And you're supposed to be living this. We're supposed to be living this. As we've been talking about, I think, the last two weeks or so, He is our hope. Jehovah God is our hope. No one can frustrate our hope because our hope is in God. And our God is God. He does whatever He pleases in heaven and earth. Jesus reigns, let the people tremble. <laughs> he is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. 
Why are you wringing your hands? Christian, why are you wringing your hands? And you know the great text, 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul writes, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. As I mentioned earlier, there are some unusual odds and ends in this text. And we will talk about them. But I want you to see, as I said a moment ago, the overarching truth here. I want you to grasp it. I want you to understand it. And I want you to anticipate it. I'm going to say it again. Verse 18, Christ died. Verse 22, He is now at the right hand of God and all angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to Him. Do you see it? That's what you need to hear tonight, beloved. And that's what you need to understand is true in your life. No, we're not God. Obviously, we're not exalted in the same way as Jesus. We understand that. We get that. But we will be exalted in Him. This is what I want us to see and understand. Jesus who suffered in this life, He is now exalted and glorified. God wants us to know and never forget this. Christians who suffer in this life, they will be exalted and they will be glorified in the next. As I was studying this text, I couldn't help but think of Hebrews 12.2. Some of you will know the great text. For the joy set before Jesus, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As I said earlier, Jesus is not focusing on the momentary and temporal suffering that He's going through. What's He looking at? He's looking through it. He's looking at His Father. And He's looking at eternity. Let me ask you, when it gets hard, is that what you do? Or do you whine to God about how hard it is? I'm not saying we can't cry out to the Lord. I'm not saying that. But do you look through the hard thing? Do you look through it and realize as a son or daughter of God, 
that's where you're headed, you soon will be exalted in the presence of Jesus. Beloved, we're supposed to know this. And we're supposed to be able to live this. As I've said several times in this series, James 1-2 tells us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. So how is this practical, useful counsel in the midst of a hard trial or in the midst of persecution? Because we are looking through it. Remember this. Look through it. Next time, or if you're in the midst of a trial, look through it. See, see Jesus through it. As we said many, many times in this series, allow God, allow your trial to be the platform through which God magnifies Himself in your life. Your trial is His platform. It's always this way in the Christian's life. We understand James 1, 2 is good counsel because our God is God, our God is sovereign, and our God is trustworthy. Romans 8, 28 is true every day. And we take the long view every day. In verse 17, Peter says, it is better if God should will it so to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is Wrong. We've already seen in this series, God has told us that as Christians, we will suffer. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So suffering to one degree or another is obviously God's will for His children. Sometimes we can discern the reasons. Sometimes they are beyond our discernment. That's not the important thing anyway. We've touched on this a lot, so I won't redevelop that. But God says if we suffer for doing what is right, we are blessed. We've been seeing this. We've seen this several times in the last several weeks, so I won't redevelop that either. So how does the Christian suffer for doing what is wrong? I thought we were under grace. How is it that Peter raises the issue here that we should suffer for doing what is wrong. Well, if we're biblically literate, we understand that we can suffer in two ways for doing what is wrong. One, we can suffer the natural consequences of our sinful Behavior, For example, disease, disability, emotional pain, loss, even death can be the direct result of sinful behavior. God has forgiven our sin, but the natural consequences of our sin are at work in our bodies and in our lives. Number two, God disciplines us for our sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 3, let me just read you an excerpt. For those whom the Lord loves, He, someone tells me, He winks at their sin. What? He disciplines them, right? Actually, the text says, He scourges every son whom He receives. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment is not joyful, but sorrowful yet yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God forgives our sin in the finished work of Jesus, but He uses discipline to correct us, to educate us, and to sanctify us. These are the two ways 
that a Christian can suffer for doing that which is wrong. Verse 18, you heard me read it. It's not only a powerful mini synopsis of the Gospel, it addresses the question inevitably raised from reading 1 Peter. Namely, with all this talk of suffering, why would I ever become a Christian? You know, if you've just read this far through the book, and you've seen how Peter keeps hammering this issue, you've got to ask the question, why would anyone reading this want to become a Christian? Have you asked that question? What's the answer? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Because Peter's actually telling us, and other Scripture as well, that our life will be harder because we belong to Christ. It's not your best life now. It's going to be a harder life now. That's actually more biblically correct. Peter's been very honest with us. So, what's the answer to the question? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? With all this suffering. You know, Peter's not marketing the Gospel. He's not spinning it. He's not been telling us that Jesus loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. <laughs> He's telling us Jesus is God and if you go with Him, the world will hate you and the world will persecute you. To one degree or another, the world will come after you. If you're really, if you're really walking with Jesus, if you're really magnifying Jesus in your life, the world will come after you. To one degree or another, unbelievers will come after you. Peter says it's going to get harder if you come to Christ. So who's going to bite on that offer? Who wants that? <laughs> There's a simple answer. There's a simple answer. Someone who can see past their felt needs to their ultimate need. Someone who can see beyond earthly comfort, security, and a long life that these are not the most important things. Someone who can see that their most urgent need is the fact that they have been cut off from their Creator and must be reconciled to Him. Someone who understood the suffering, that understands that the suffering uh, from the wrath of God forever is vastly more terrifying than any temporal suffering for righteousness' sake. That's who wants to be a Christian. Someone who sees that God is holy and I am not. And I have no way to approach a holy God. No way. Religion's not going to get it done for me. Religion is the biggest lie on the planet. It's Satan's best con. I need a Savior. That's who becomes a Christian. <laughs> I know a lot of people are playing games and doing Christian stuff and calling it... Yeah, I know there's a lot of pseudo-Christianity. We've talked about that. I get that. But I'm talking about being a real Christian. And that's, you know, anytime you, you get into the Bible, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a disciple of Jesus. That's what we're talking about. That's God's definition of a true believer. 
Verse 18 addresses this urgent and universal need. I need a Savior! God is infinitely holy. I cannot approach Him. He is a consuming fire. I must have a Savior. This is why people become Christians in the face of persecution and even death. Because they need a Savior. That's what the first century Christian knew. He needs a Savior. Oh, you're going to kill me? Okay, I need Jesus more than I need my life. I know it's hard for us to relate to this because we do not have this kind of threat hanging over us as they did in the first century. And some of you from different places in the world, some of you will face, will face these kinds of things. But Jesus is, means more to me than anything, including my own life. As verse 18 says, Jesus died for His people's sins. And I'm just going to go through this very quickly. He took our punishment for our sin. He received God's wrath in our place. Verse 18 says, He died once for all. That simply means that His sacrifice was final. It was sufficient for all times. We can't and we don't have anything to add to His finished work. The just came for the unjust. The holy God sacrificed Himself for unholy men. The innocent sacrificed Himself for the guilty in order that He might bring us to God. He reconciled the elect to God. This is what Jesus did. He's reconciled us to God. <laughs> That's why people become a Christian. Not so they'll have a better life now, which in fact they will, even if it's harder, it's better to know Him and to walk with Him, to love Him, to fellowship with Him. It's a sweet thing. It's a blessed thing. I often, I tell Karen more times than she could ever count, I love my job. I get to talk about Jesus, man. I get paid to talk about Jesus. It's the best job in the world. It's the best job in the world to be in His Word and be meditating on who He is and what He's done. It's an amazing thing. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes the Gospel quite simply. And what Peter has said to us here in verse 18, in Christ, God put the wrong on Him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. Again, this is why men, women, boys and girls become Christian in the, Christians in the face of persecution, deprivation, suffering, and death. David is right. God's loving kindness is better than life. If we've met Jesus, we know that David is right. We know firsthand that David is right. We know that Jesus is better than anything this life can give and Jesus is better than anything death can take. Oh, you're going to take my life? Okay. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We're free to die. Again, praise the Lord, we live in a time and in a culture where that's, that's not going to happen in Western Europe. I don't know where some of you will ultimately end up. Verse 19 and 20. These unusual and much debated verses here. Uh, there are numerous, numerous views on this text. I will mention two that are plausible to me. 
And while I believe my view better fits the context of the passage, I am not dogmatic about these verses. They are mysterious and somewhat hard to understand. Uh, the explicit meaning, I'm going to say what I said to you earlier, the explicit meaning of the details of this text is not the paramount issue. The principal matter at hand is this text is uh, the illustrative nature and value of this account. Peter is laboring to show us that Jesus suffered and died, but now He is triumphant. And the first thing He says to us, well, let me, let me walk through this with you. Peter wants us to know when we see the suffering, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ, we can anticipate the same thing for ourselves. This is what we need to take away from this text. Not the ongoing theological debate about exactly what these verses mean and what Jesus was actually doing and when He was doing it. Okay? Okay. The first view is that the Spirit of Jesus was preaching through Noah and that those unrepentant people of Noah's day are now in a place of torment awaiting final judgment. This is, John's Piper, this is John Piper's view. It could very well be correct. I do not hold this view. I do not find this view compelling. Actually, the word now is not in the Greek text. If you go look at the Greek, the word now is not in the text. It's actually not in most English translations. It is in my Bible, the NAS, the word now. The second view, the one I hold, is this, that between His death and resurrection, Christ went to proclaim His victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan, as verse 19 says, to the spirits who are in Prison. I'm not going to go into great detail here or seek to defend my view. I simply am going to make a few comments for, um, for you to consider. And you can go study it for yourself. I do, again, believe that this my view fits the context of the passage. That Jesus Christ, tri that Jesus Christ is triumphant through suffering. So, who are these spirits in prison? Based on the Greek and based on what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.4, namely that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committing them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, biblically we understand uh, that some angels, fallen angels and demons, are still free to roam the earth. But this passage suggests that there are some who have already been imprisoned. That's what the text is talking about. Why are these fallen angels or demons or spirits, why have they already been in prison? In my view, it goes back to what happened in Noah's time recorded in Genesis 6. The sons of God, and I'm quoting from Genesis 6, the sons of God, it's an Old Testament phrase for angels. It's a, it simply means that uh, these beings were brought into existence directly by God, not through procreation. The, the sons of God, it's an Old Testament phrase for angels, the sons of God came into the daughters of men 
and they bore children to them. It's what Jude is talking about in Jude chapter 6. And this verse really solidifies my view. Jude 6 says this, "...and angels who did not keep their own dominion but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day." The sin of Genesis 6 was so heinous in the eyes of God, this pollution of the human race, this human demonic hybrid breed, it was so heinous in the eyes of God that He locked them up there in prison. And Jesus went to these imprisoned demons to proclaim His victory. This is my view. You study it. For yourself. I know I've left a lot of unanswered questions here. Each view has unanswered questions. But again, I'm going to remind you the paramount point here is that Christ is triumphant through his death. He proclaims his victory in hell. This is what I want you to see Jesus is triumphant. Why do I need to know that Jesus is triumphant? We've talked about it. You need to know that you will be triumphant. Oh, Jim, they're cutting me in two. They're sawing me in two. Hebrews chapter 11. You will be triumphant in Christ. This is what we're supposed to know and understand from this text. Verses 20 and 21, we see this beautiful analogy of Noah's ark and Christian baptism, some denominations and cults. They love verse 21 because they seek to use it to support their view that the physical act of baptism saves. This is called baptismal regeneration. If we understand what our Bibles teach about salvation and what our Bibles teach about baptism, we clearly understand that this is a false teaching. Baptism does not save. In fact, this is exactly what Peter is saying in his own way. He says, I'm not talking about removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not what saves you. It's your faith that saves you. There's no magic in the water. The physical ordinance does not save. It's not about the water. It's about an appeal to God from a good conscience. An appeal of faith in the, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. The principal point is that just as Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people in all, just as they believed and were saved through the ark, the Christian believes and is saved through Jesus. If you've been taught that the physical act of baptism saves, and you have questions, come talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I've got a sermon on this. You can, I'll give you my notes, or you can go listen to it on the podcast site. Um, if you have questions, I'll be happy to speak with you about that. Verse 22, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. It's what we've been accentuating for the last several weeks. The deity and lordship of Jesus Christ. He is God and nobody else is. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord reigns let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So perception is not always reality. 
Jesus was not a pathetic figure whose naivete got Him killed. Jesus is God. Jesus' life and His death was not a sad, inconsequential chapter in an unimportant corner of the world. God was saving His people. Perception is not always reality. Jesus is not a dead carpenter lying in an unmarked grave somewhere. He is the awesome, fearsome, risen, reigning, returning God before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Even the damned will confess that He is Lord. Perception is not reality. Our suffering as Christians is not because Jesus is impotent or because He's a pathetic kind of God or because He has been... uh, turned into a fairy tale of some kind. He is God and He is working His sovereign purposes in our trials and in our suffering. Perception is not always reality. We do not suffer as Christians because we are forsaken. And you've heard me say this several times in this series. It's because we are chosen. It's not because we are neglected. It's because we are elected. It's not because we are abandoned, but because we are adopted. Perception is not always reality. Your present suffering as a Christian does not foretell the eternity that you will experience. For you will be like Jesus in that regard. You will be exalted. In Christ. I'm going to close with that great text, Romans 8, that I read earlier. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Beloved, I hope you hear the message. This text, we're supposed to look at Jesus, we're supposed to look at His suffering, and we're supposed to look at His ultimate exaltation. He is our model. He is our example. This is the way it will be for every true born-again believer. We will suffer to one degree or another but we will be exalted in the life to come in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this message. Thank You that our, that our example in suffering is Jesus Christ. For as we see Him exalted in the next life, You have made a comparable promise to us. We too will be, as the text says, glorified in Christ. Lord, I pray as Your people 
that we would learn to think like this. That we would process hard times like this. That we would process persecution like this. That we would navigate the trials and the suffering as we look through it. Trusting in who You are. Trusting in what You've said. Trusting in what You've promised. Trusting in what You want to do in us and through us. Thank You, Father, that You have been forthright with us. You've told us if we want to go with Jesus, we must pick up our cross. Thank You, Lord, that You have given us the faith to do just that. It's this great gift of faith that You give to Your children. We thank You, Father, that You have given us this faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. We would be faithful to exercise this faith that we would be mighty men and women upon the earth, that we would be mighty disciples in our orbit, that we would make much of Jesus in the few moments that You have allotted us upon this planet. We praise You, great God. We are filled with wonder, awestruck wonder. We praise You, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.